This is week three of our awkward series, stuff that Christians don't have to be weird about, and I'm telling you, this week is gonna be fun. We are gonna totally handle everything related to sex, sexuality, LGBTQ issues, and gender equality. Uh, the Kavanaugh, Dr. Ford thing, we're gonna handle it all in 35 minutes. You ready? Actually, 32 minutes, 40 seconds, okay. Two weeks ago, we started this awkward series talking about fake happy, that church is awkward because people can't be honest or real coming to church, put on that plastic smile, even though I don't really feel like it. Uh, we talked about the full embrace of human emotion. Last week, we talked about the church's awkward reputation of being mindless, that you can't come to church without shutting off your brain and you can't take science seriously and all that. We, we handled that, that God wants us to love him with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. He gave us a beautiful mind. Today, we're going to talk about the awkwardness in church of purity and patriarchy. We still have sort of that Puritan reputation that it's about the rules and it's about men kind of leading. And so we're going to solve all that today. It's going to be awesome. Ready? Christians have a reputation that's not real good about purity and patriarchism, right? Uh, Christians have a reputation of ignoring the powerful sexual design of humankind. Sex is almost like a, a hunger, like eating or thirst. It's a hunger that is wired into humanity, and it's there for a reason. God designed us that way, yet church is awkward about it and sometimes doesn't talk about it. And when we talk about it, we cast it in terms of moral issues, moral do's and don'ts. So Christians have a reputation of reducing sex to lists of moral and immoral acts. And we think, well, that's what it means to teach the Bible. We tell people what not to do. That's awkward. Christians also have a reputation of being mean towards those who do not fit into the tidy sexual biblical ideals, which we'll talk about today. But we can come across as mean to those who, who don't conform to that, right? That's including the LGBT community. There's a meanness that has come from the church. Christians have a reputation of patriarchy and repression of women. Now, this isn't just Christianity. It's not just religion. It's every human institution has a history of patriarchy and repression of women. Business, for sure. Politics, for sure. Entertainment, Hollywood, for sure. Education. Every single human institution has a, a pretty terrible history of patriarchy and repression of women, including the church, including the Christian church, and we'll talk about that today because that is really the topic of today, particularly this week with the, the Kavanaugh-Dr. Ford issue and the FBI investigation and the Supreme Court nomination, right? There has never been a time in history where Christians and culture have been so polarized. Never has there been a time when Christianity and culture has been so polarized and it's over largely these issues that we'll talk about today. Now, with that said, there's a, an incredible um, conversation going on in the church, at least in the West, an incredible conversation where the church is beginning to embrace the incredible God-given gift of sexuality. The church is starting to speak about this and write about this more and more comfortably. The church is increasingly embracing an unconditional graciousness toward all people, including the LGBTQ community. A graciousness is emerging in the church, which is incredible. The church is also embracing the biblical vision of gender equality. This is less and less a fight and more and more the church is saying, yes, we see that biblically and we want to see that implemented in the church. Now, as we talk about all of these things today, we're going to talk about them all today. We have to engage this conversation in, in three ways. And I want to encourage all of us to, to, to really hold this conversation in three ways. The first is de-escalation. De-escalation. The, the tone in America is insane accusation, hate, venom being lobbed on all sides. If we're going to have a meaningful conversation, let's de-escalate. Similarly, let's be thoughtful. Let's be thoughtful. In order to be thoughtful on this or any subject, we need to try to separate ourselves from ideology. 
ideology tends to create more problems than good. Ideology could be religious ideology, could be political ideology, and, and sometimes our whole life can be based on a political ideology or religious ideology. Well, there's you know, no coincidence that ideology and idolatry have the same root word. Ideology can become idolatry very quickly. We can actually base our lives upon our political ideology. That's a form of idolatry. Instead of placing our lives upon our faith in a loving, gracious God through Jesus Christ, we are placing our life upon a political or religious ideology that taints everything we say and everything we do and every conversation. So perhaps let's be a little more thoughtful. The other thing I wanna ask is that we be a learning community. This is one of the things I'm most proud of Rancho. We are a learning community. Everyone is not walking goose step and, and uh, adhering to everything the pastor says. People don't come to Rancho Community Church because they believe what the pastor says. I don't want that kind of church. Believe me, it be, would be the most boring place on earth if everybody believed with what the pastor said, right? Let's have a meaningful conversation. Let's be a learning community. If I'm getting off the rails, hey, get me back on the rails, right? Uh, and I can be kind of a voice of our journey but not setting the, the, the doctrine of every little jot and tittle around here. Let's be a learning community. So this is what I'm asking for as we address this, this very serious uh, conversation. So you ready? Let's talk about sex. This will be fun. Now, it is PG, right? Not PG-13, it's PG. So kids will be fine, um, um, very sure. So, but we kind of warned you, it's PG. As we talk about sex, sexuality, and gender, we have to go to the beginning, the beginning, which is Genesis 1 and 2. So regarding sex, let's talk about Genesis chapter 2. This is pretty clear, Genesis 2.22. The Lord God made the woman from the side of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That's a little play on Hebrew words there. We don't see that in English, but it's, it's cool. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. One flesh is obviously clearly talking about sex. God creates man and woman creates them equally, brings them together, and encourages them to enjoy one another. Not just enjoy their spiritual covenantal union we call marriage, but to enjoy the union of bodies that we call sex. Now, as we approach this passage and every other passage in this subject or any subject, we have to look at this through a certain lens. Here's how you read your Bible, through this lens. Everything God does is a story of what is apart coming together. If we're going to understand anything in the Bible, we have to understand that everything God does as written in God's word is a story of what is apart coming together. Now, let's just say someone comes up to me and says, Pastor Treadway, on behalf of the entire world, we want you to rename the Bible. I don't know who named the Bible. Uh, it wasn't God's idea, I don't think, but um, somebody named the Bible, the Bible. And it's a pretty boring name. What does the Bible mean? See, see how boring it is? It means book. Somebody named the 66 books of the Bible, book. So if, if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Scott, we want you to rename the Bible, I would rename the Bible together. That, that's what I would title the Bible because everything in the Bible, cover to cover, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is about God bringing together what is apart. Bringing together what is apart. Now you might ask, well, what does that have to do with sex? Well, it's kind of clear. There's nothing more together than sex. God is bringing people together, husband and wife together. The entire narrative of God's word is about bringing what is apart together. 
And so here you have in Genesis 1 and 2, man and woman made apart and being joined together in a spiritual covenant and then enjoying each other in a physical bond of the sexual union. To put it this way, marriage is a joining of souls that expresses the oneness of God. See, God is one, yet plural, Father, Son, Spirit. So he made humankind plural, but then says, live as one. So marriage is the joining of the souls expressing the oneness of God. Sex is the joining of bodies expressing the oneness of souls. Isn't that kind of cool? That's beautiful. It is beautiful. But oftentimes you go to church and it's just a list of things you should not do when. Don't do this, don't do this, this not before marriage, this after marriage, this you still don't do in marriage. I mean, it's a list of do's and don'ts. Church has become moral policing regarding sexuality. But yet God created the sexual union to be a very beautiful thing. As two souls come together in the covenant of marriage, two bodies come together as the sacrament of marriage, the physical expression of marriage. Sex is an amazing gift of God. It really is. And we ought to be very clear to teach about that and to enjoy that because the more open we are about that, the more we can help people. We can help young people understand the beauty of, of marriage and sexuality and not just this you know, killjoy list of things you, you can't or shouldn't do. We can allow marriages to just freely walk an incredible journey of further enjoying one another in your union and in your physical union of sexuality. So being open about it and having it be a natural part of our conversation has so much benefit, especially with the next generation. A lot of times people grow up in churches and all they hear is the, is the threats. Don't do this or God won't bless you. Don't, if you do this, God won't bless your future marriage. If, if you misbehave in the sexual areas, God will you know, turn his back on you and he won't answer your prayers and ruin your life. And I mean, all kinds of threats are bearing down on our young people regarding sex and sexuality. It's awkward. The more natural and open we are about a very clear, biblical, wonderful gift that God gives us, the better off we're all going to be. Here's a reality, though. Genesis 2 teaches the ideal, right? The ideal that one man, one woman coming together in marriage and enjoying the sexual relationship within the context of that marriage. That's the biblical ideal. Take a guess how many Christians admit that they have lived into that biblical ideal. 3%. And at least half of them probably lying. 97% of Christians admit that they have not lived into the biblical ideal. And we're not even talking about things like pornography and other things that are very degrading and harmful. We're just talking about sexual activity before marriage. 97% of Christians said, yeah, it kind of blew that one. So why is it that churches seem so fiercely dedicated to pushing the biblical ideal on the next generation and on each other when the vast, vast majority of us have failed to do that? There's something there. In fact, uh, I know a lot of pastors and, and, uh, and sometimes pastors have a particular bent on this and they are just pushing real hard, biblical purity, biblical purity, right? And there's whole systems around that. And if you grew up, again, in the 80s and 90s, purity rings. And we're just pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. Pushing it hard with big-time threats against people who might blow it, right? And then every once in a while, I haven't done this a lot, but every once in a while, coming alongside the pastor and say, hey, you sound like you were absolutely pure until marriage. (laughs) Uh, Then what are you doing? It's the guilt that that pastor is feeling pouring out upon other people. So hopefully there might be some folks who don't feel the same guilt I do. It's awkward. It is absolutely awkward. And if you think the biblical ideal is something that the heroes of the Bible also lived into, you would also be mistaken. Do a little Bible study of the sexual habits of biblical heroes. That's a fun one. (laughs) 
The sermon series we'll put on the billboard. So, you know, does that mean we let go of biblical, the biblical ideal? No, the biblical ideal is there for a reason. The biblical ideal is the most beautiful journey when it comes to sex and sexuality. It's the most beautiful journey. There's hardly anyone, if anyone, who actually walks the purity of that biblical ideal. So let's hold to the biblical ideal, but let's hold it with grace. Let's hold it with humility. Because if we turn the biblical, the biblical ideal into a weapon to threaten people or to punish people or to saddle them with guilt and shame, we're not doing any good anyway. What does Galatians 3.21 say? The apostle Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God. Never set aside the grace of God. He says, I come to faith because of God's grace. Jesus died for my sins, unconditional love towards me. I'm forgiven through Christ. But then you go into church and it's immediately law, the things you can and cannot do. Paul says, I never set aside grace. I come to faith by grace and I live by grace. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So people come to faith, particularly young people, come to faith because of God's grace. Yeah, I know I've blown it. I need to be forgiven. Wow, I'm forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. I accept that. I receive that. You go to church and now here's this list of things you can and cannot do with threats. Guilt, shame, threats. Don't set aside grace. We come to faith in grace and we live in grace. Grace transforms us. Grace makes us more like Christ, not the law. Not the law. So if we can hold to the biblical standards, but hold them with grace and humility, I think we'll be far, far better off. All right, let's talk about sexuality. Now that we solve the whole sex deal, let's talk about sexuality, particularly about gender identity or sexual identity. This is a big, big discussion today. In fact, for the last 40 years, the church and culture, particularly the evangelical church and culture, have been at war over sexuality and gender and gender identity in, in particular. Now, we've gotta be sober about what the Bible says about gender identity, particularly homosexuality. There is one law in the Old Testament that may specifically address homosexuality, although there's a little bit of a debate around that. Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Uh, it is also mentioned four, uh, three times in the New Testament. Uh, homosexuality is in a list of, of things that are uh, not uh, according to, uh, to God's ideals, all right? So there's four key mentions in the Bible about homosexuality. Now, because there's four, that doesn't minimize it, right? God's word is true and God's standards are, are clear, right? So let's assume that there is a biblical conviction that homosexuality is not aligned with the Genesis 2 ideal. Let's assume that. What do we do now? Let's assume the Genesis 2 ideal does not include homosexual behavior. What do we do with that? Do we abuse people? What's the answer? Do we hate them? Do we rage against them? Do we malign them? Do we insult them? Do we mock them? No. Yet that is what the Christian church has done. Not all of us. This isn't to broad brush it. But, but the Christian church of late, it is changing. Keep in mind we celebrated that. But the Christian church has laid out abuse, hate, rage, and maligning, and insulting, and mocking. And yes, it's come both ways. So, but I'm not talking out there. I'm talking in here. The Christian church hasn't done so well. We've set up the LGBTQ community as enemies and we should not do that. Is that how Jesus treated people who did not align with the Genesis 2 biblical ideal? No. We studied that over the summer. How did Jesus treat people, including those labeled sinners? How did he treat them? He didn't do this at all. The only time he did any of this was against the religious leaders who were doing this against people who were labeled sinners. Hope that made sense. So let's understand sexuality, and, and by the way, this is not the definitive word on sexuality, gender identification, and any of that, but I, I think it's helpful for us to understand 
that sexuality and homosexuality and gender, gender identification is more complex than perhaps the Christian church has thought it was. Here's a couple things to consider. Roughly 2% of the population is strictly gay or lesbian, and it has always been like that. The, the, the world as a whole is not um, increasing in gay behavior, lesbian behavior. There has always been a small minority of people who have been attracted exclusively to the opposite sex. This is not a new phenomenon. We have studies and data now that kind of point that at 2%. Roughly 1% of the population identifies as bisexual. There is a, a much smaller group, it could be a quarter percent, could be up to half a percent, could be identified as intersex, both genders. And this could be hermaphrodites that are born with uh, uh, both genitalia. Very often there is a surgery that takes place fairly quickly. People are questioning whether there should be uh, a surgery. There's chromosomal issues. There's a lot of biological issues. Uh, you could argue some psychological issues that would identify people as intersex, both genders. Roughly five to 10% of the world, the global population, has some same-sex attraction. So they identify as heterosexual. They live a lifestyle that is heterosexual, but have some same-sex attractions, may have kind of experimented with homosexual behavior. About 5% of the population has had a homosexual experience. So about five to 10% some same-sex attraction. That means about 90 to 93% of the population is entirely heterosexual. Now, we might call that typical, but there's always been a diversity. There's always been a sexual diversity in humankind. Now, why is that? Why is there sexual diversity? Two things, biology, which cannot be argued. There's a biological component to sexual identity. And some people get a little bit nervous here. This is where Christians get a little bit nervous about the biological function, but let me just be very clear about this. And I think you're gonna agree, no matter where you stand on this, that, and I'll just speak for myself, my sexuality is in large part because of biology. So is yours. Your sexuality, no matter where you are, if you're the 90, 93% typical, if you have some same-sex attraction, or you're, you're homosexual or bisexual, no matter where you fall on that, biology has something to say about our sexual attraction. That is almost irrefutable. And so for a lot of Christians, and this is part of the awkwardness, Christians will very, very clearly say, yes, well, my heterosexuality is bio, bio, uh, has to do with biology in part, but certainly not homosexuality. So we've just got to be a little more thoughtful about that. And then environment. Environment plays a role, and there's all kinds of debate about how much does biology play and how much does environment play. But environment plays a role in heterosexuality big time, Right? If somebody is born with the, the biology of a heterosexual and then lives a life, 95% of our influence uh, culturally is aiming towards heterosexuality. And so our environment is affirming our biology. But there are environmental factors that do have an impact on, uh, on people's sexuality. For example, family dynamics, specific bonding to specific parents at specific times, isolation, sexual exposure, sexual abuse. There's a lot environmentally that plays into sexuality. So we've just got to realize this is not simple. This isn't simple. And part of the awkwardness of the Christian church over the last several decades is the Christian church essentially comes across as though some people wake up and just decide to be homosexual. Could you imagine yourself, if you're a heterosexual, can you imagine yourself waking up tomorrow morning and thinks, I think today's a gay day. Could you just choose homosexuality one day and not another? The awkwardness of the Christian church has been, and again, it's changing, thankfully, but the awkwardness of the Christian church is almost as though there are these people who just choose one day 
to be homosexual and they're dishonoring God. I mean, it's, it's just not that simple. Now, just because there's a small minority of people who are LGBTQ, that does not mean they should endure meanness or harsh treatment or even abuse. We've got to do better than that. We've got to do better than that. But here's the reality in church. The closer a member of the LGBTQ community is to the church, the more unloved and rejected they will feel. That's true. And a lot of church environments, not all, but a lot of church environments. This is generally true. And this is entirely unacceptable. This is entirely wrong. That is not what Jesus did. When Jesus came across people whose, whose lives and lifestyles did not align with the Genesis 2 sexual ideal, Jesus did not treat them harshly. He did not stiff arm them. He did not say, no, clean yourself up and then come to me. He embraced them relationally. He forgave them unconditionally and then walks a journey forward. We can hold our biblical convictions, but not, let's not hold them with a hammer. What the LGBTQ community does not need from us is finger wagging, moral policing, judgment and condemnation. That is not what Jesus did to people who didn't fit in the Genesis 2 ideal. In fact, we have an example, a stunning example of how we should approach all people but in this example, it's particularly somebody whose sexuality did not align with the Genesis 2 ideal. It's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, you know, follower of Christ, apostle, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, and it's very important, both these words, Ethiopian, not a Jew. Acts chapter 8, the jury was out. Is God's grace for the Jews, or was it for, is it for everybody? Ethiopian, an ethnic minority, eunuch, a sexual minority. The Bible is very clear. This story matters for those two reasons. Philip met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the queen. The only way a man could be this close to the queen is if he had zero sexual attraction towards women. That was the qualification. That's what's called a eunuch. There were some eunuchs who were eunuchs by birth, not attracted to women by birth. Men not attracted to women by birth. They could be deemed eunuchs. There were other eunuchs by We'll just say crushing, and I'm going to leave it right there. Ancient civilization was not a lot of fun. This man, this Ethiopian eunuch, had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Then Philip told the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Let's hold it right here. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Here's Philip, this apostle, talking to an Ethiopian eunuch, a racial minority, a sexual minority. Did they talk about race once? What's the answer? You can do better than that. No. no. Did they talk about sexual behavior once? What's the answer? Not once. He was eager to tell him the good news of Jesus, the good news of God's grace, the good news of the forgiveness of sin by grace alone, the good news that we can be one with God as we know Jesus and trust in Jesus. He is the way to the Father. Without condition, we can know the love of God by the grace of God. And what does the eunuch say? He receives God's grace, and he says, what, why shouldn't I be baptized? What is preventing me from being baptized? That's not a rhetorical question. It's a real question and probably a long, pregnant pause. Because there could have been a huge answer there. In fact, I would say in the not too distant past, if somebody of the Ethiopian eunuch's lifestyle were to come to church, hear the message of God's grace through Jesus Christ, it's first Sunday, so today is Baptism Sunday, 
And if somebody of the Ethiopian eunuch's lifestyle would say in a church, what is preventing me from being baptized? I bet more times than not, there would be an answer. Well, let's talk about your lifestyle. Let's talk about your sexual resume. Let's talk about how you're gonna clean yourself up first. And we're gonna call that repentance. Philip gave the orders to stop the chariot. Both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. Thank God we are saved by grace. Everyone is saved by grace. Now, what if Philip came to the eunuch and said, hey, uh, buddy, I got some good news to tell you, but first I need to know something. Uh, you know, how would you describe your sexual ha habits? Break out your sexual resume because, you know, that's going to determine whether or not you get God's grace that betrays the good news of Jesus Christ. But that's the awkwardness of the church. It's almost as though a church has a sign on the door that says no LGBTQ community allowed. We'll take our sins We'll take our sexual failures, you know, sex before marriage, pornography. We'll take those. You know, those are, the, those are the lightweight ones. But boy, what you're dealing with is big. God can't handle that one. Get rid of that before you come in. I, I mean, wow. So is it possible to hold a biblical conviction and also be wonderful, wonderfully kind and pleasant? What's the answer? Yes. We can hold our biblical convictions, no problem, but hold them with humility and grace. And then is it possible, or if it's possible, for the grace of God to be freely given to the Ethiopian eunuch without a moral examination, perhaps we can give the same courtesy to everyone today. That's what Jesus did, that's what Philip did, that's what we ought to do today. Let's not be awkward about sexuality. So we handled sex, we handled sexuality. You ready for one more? Let's talk about gender, specifically gender equality. This is a big deal today. This is, this is what our culture is, is really leaning into big time. Uh, a, a huge awareness of where women have been abused and mistreated, and the Me Too movement is creating a lot of courage for women to tell their stories. But then on the other side of this are, are, are men who are saying, hey, just because I'm a man, I'm not, I'm not a perpetrator, you know? It, it, let's have a, a more thoughtful understanding about this. And, and this last couple of weeks with the Kavanaugh confirmation and the FBI investigation and the testimony and the swearing in last night, I mean, this country is all about gender issues. And, and we can't be awkward about it. We've got to look at the biblical ideal about gender and we've got to be bold about it. We've got to be courteous about it and we've got to get on board with God's heart. So again, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 1, 26. One of the most important verses in the Bible. I say that a lot today. This is the definitive verse in terms of gender, gender roles, and gender equality. This is the definitive verse. It frankly settles it. There's another one that helps a little later. God said, let us, so again, God is plural, yet one. Let us make humankind in our image. In our likeness. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I want to be very precise about exactly what this incredible passage means. So we have a lot of slides here. Both male and female are created in the singular image of God. Keep in mind, God is non-gendered. God is not a man. God is not a woman, right? God is God and he creates humanity in his image through male and female. In other words, God could not express his full image through just male. God could not express his full image through just female. So apart from the male and female together, the image of God is not fully expressed. I want to go back to our original concept of how we read the Bible. Keep in mind, everything God does is a story of what is apart coming together. 
And so as he, as he the, the, the one true God, creates man and woman in his own image, he creates them separate, and then he brings them together. That's his vision. Create man and woman separate out of the singular nature of God, and together, as they love each other, care for each other, support each other, in culture and in marriage, as they come together, the full image of God is expressed in the world. As God is together, God is plural and one. As God is together, so he created humankind as a plurality, male and female, that commands them to live as one, to live as equals, both made in the image of God. Men and women are created in every way, equals before God and before each other as the expression of God's image. Wanted to be crystal clear with that language. All that's on the slide. Genesis 1 is an incredible articulation of equality. Equality. It is miraculous. In fact, if you were to ask me, and this is no joke and not hyperbole, if you were to ask me what's the number one proof that the Bible is God's word, I would point top three to this passage because this incredibly poetic and truthful uh, uh, revelation of God was given to an ancient culture at least 3,000 years ago where women were owned as property. Can you imagine receiving this revelation from God when women are owned as property and you get this, this truth that says both men and women are equally created in the image of God. Repeated time and time again. Male and female. In the image of God. Male and female. He created them. Male and female. It's an incredible truth. An astounding, earth-shattering truth given 3,000 years ago. So here we have Genesis 1. This amazing you know, chapter about how God creates the heavens and the earth and the image of God in male and female. Genesis 2 is a different creation account from a different point of view, a real human point of view of God bringing man and woman together in marriage and the gift of sexuality. Wow, you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you think this is awesome. Genesis 3, it all goes to hell in a handbasket. And immediately, almost immediately, you have this incredible separation of men and women. First of all, the scripture says they're apart. And keep in mind, it's a beautiful piece of literature. Men and women are apart. They blow it apart. They're fighting, accusing each other, defending themselves, and suffering the consequence of walking away from the biblical vision of togetherness and equality. And then the culture, the world, the ancient world just goes nuts with enslaving people, particularly enslaving women, where men can have multiple wives, but wives can't have multiple husbands. Women treated as property. Men can dismiss their wives uh, through divorce, but women can't dismiss their husbands through divorce. If a husband dismisses his wife, she's by herself and likely homeless the rest of her life. The injustice that hits culture is so profound. So what does God do? God steps in. And we see in the Old Testament law, God gives about a dozen specific laws to protect women in this horrifically broken ancient culture. One of the laws, I'll just give you an example, one of the laws protects women slaves. And some people might read that, oh, well, God is, you know, uh, endorsing the slavery of women. No, not at all. The whole culture, the whole world is essentially treating women like slaves or taking women as slaves. And God is saying, if that's happening, protect women. God never leaves the Genesis 1 ideal of equality, never once. But all along in this fallen human culture, God continues to step in to protect women, protect women, protect women. God steps in and says, listen, men, you are casting women aside. You're divorcing women and they are lost because they can never get married. I command you, give them a certificate of divorce. If you're going to send away your wife, give them a certificate so they have something literally in writing that, that can prove to the world that they are no longer bound to a husband so they can marry again and be provided for. 
There's a lot of ancient civilization that's just gross and wrong. God steps in and protects women time and time again. And then you see these bright spots in the Old Testament, Miriam, this exalted worship leader in Genesis and Exodus chapter 15, leading all of Israel in worship. Deborah, a woman, leading all of Israel. She's the ruler and judge of all of Israel. Esther, this heroine, perfectly positioned to save all of Israel. Then you have Jesus. Jesus has women at his core uh, ministry and, and doing so much to advance the ministry. Women who are the first to witness and believe in, in the resurrection of Christ, the first evangelist of the resurrection. There were women deacon, deaconesses. Junia was a woman apostle. You see in, in the scripture through the ministry of Jesus in the early church, women beginning to take their rightful place as equals with men. And then you have Galatians 3.28, which to me is the crescendo of the implications of the gospel of Christ. Now get this. This is the perfect marriage with Genesis 1. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, meaning it's about belonging to Christ. When we belong to Jesus Christ, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ in him, there's absolute unity and equality between the genders. Keep in mind, what does God want? He wants everything that's apart brought together. Right now before our eyes, this country is being torn apart. And I know, I know that's, that, that's, that's scary words, but I'm reading this all over the place. I'm reading these words that the country is being torn apart. And, and about gender roles and gender equality is, is, is key to that. And yet we have this Genesis 1 model and we have a history in the church that is very marred. But today, in today's day and age, it is changing rapidly and wonderfully. Rapidly and wonderfully. So here we have, let's say, the issue of our time. You have the Me Too movement, you have the Kavanaugh, Dr. Ford thing, and, and, and how are we going to, to live in this world? How are we gonna live in this culture where women's issues are front and center? Are we gonna to retreat to our ideologies, which sometimes is idolatry? Well, I'm this and I'm that, and therefore I have to accuse you. I'm in this camp, so therefore I have to reject you and reject your camp. I'm in this camp, so I have to believe everything that this camp is saying. We pat each other on the back. Let's get away from ideology, and let's look at the biblical vision. Let's look at the biblical convictions of gender equality. Let me put it to you very, very clearly. We have to listen to women who are courageously telling their stories of abuse and violence at the hands of men. We have to listen to them. Because since the dawn of humanity, women have been pushed aside, marginalized, and voiceless, uh, abused and mistreated in, in silence, afraid to be able to tell their stories because of the power that is over them. We've got to be able to, as followers of Christ, look at that Genesis 1 vision, look at how God has protected women and exalted women, and say, we are going to ensure that women have the courage to tell their stories of abuse and violence at the hands of men. Also, we have to hold to the basic right of the assumption of innocence until proven guilty. If we lose that, we lose everything. If we can just accuse and one accusation brings an entire human being down and their family and their reputation forever, that's, that's unacceptable. As well, we have to do everything we can to protect women who are often voiceless and powerless. We've gotta have laws to protect women. We have to, to add courage, that's what encouragement means, is to add courage to women who feel powerless and who feel voiceless and who have been hurt and abused in silence. We have to, to, to encourage them to tell their voice and encourage them to have power and empower all women everywhere, culturally, make cultural changes because every single one of these industries, including religion and entertainment and business and politics, 
has this patriarchal, men-driven history that is changing right now, wonderfully, I believe, rapidly. We've got to get on board with that and see to it that this biblical vision and biblical idea of Genesis 1 is realized. But we also cannot accuse all men of being perpetrators just because they're men or because they're sensitive to the presumption of innocence. It's a crazy world out there. We don't have to be crazy. We don't have to be awkward. The church doesn't have a stellar reputation for matters of sex, sexuality, and gender, but that can be repaired. Our awkward reputation in these issues can be repaired through repentance, owning, absolutely owning where we have failed historically. We can have this reputation repaired by humanizing the issue. These are not just issues to fight about. These are human beings, every single human being with, their, with their, their past, their choices, their lifestyle. Everyone is a human being made in the image of God, dearly loved by God for whom Jesus died and gave his life to bring them to the heavenly father now and forever. This is not an issue to win politically. These are human beings. And then to have gracious conversation. Gracious conversation publicly, gracious conversation privately. Don't fall into this venom of ideology. Hold our biblical convictions with grace and humility. Repent of where we have failed to treat people well and to treat people in a very unchristlike way. Humanize these issues and have gracious conversation. I love Colossians 4, 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We follow Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who poured grace freely upon this world and upon you and me to forgive every one of our failures. Let's be gracious in return. As I close in prayer, it'll be a prayer of faith. This isn't about an issue. This is really about grace. This is really about the gospel. And for some of you who came from kind of a religious background, you have felt either as the condemned one or the condemner, it is time to do better. It is time to let the grace of God through Jesus Christ flood over us. He gave his life on a cross to forgive us just as we are, to forgive us as we are, and then walk a journey of grace going forward. Let's receive that and let's live that out in this world. Our God and Father, we, we thank you for your grace through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness only comes through him. Forgiveness does not come when we get our act together, when we become more religiously compliant, when we change our lifestyle to conform with the biblical ideals. We are saved, we are forgiven, we have a relationship with you only by unconditional grace through Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, who gave his life to forgive us all. No one of us is better than the other. He gave his life to forgive us all, and it's only by faith in him that we can be forgiven and enjoy a new and eternal relationship with you. So God, we receive your grace. Now help us to be gracious to others. Help us not to be the finger-wagging, moral police, condemning and threatening people. Thank you that your church, including Rancho, is on a journey of such grace, grace received and grace given, that we can hold the biblical convictions but hold them with humility, hold them with love, not weaponizing your word for the harm of others, but using your word to tell the world there is grace and forgiveness in Christ. There's a community of love that will embrace everyone and walk together in this journey you have for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.